Shalom, everybody, and welcome to the Ishai Fleischer Show, broadcasting live from Judea to the world. You're part of it wherever you are. Shalom and welcome to Malka Fleischer. Hello, hello, hello. All right, Malka, we got a great show uh, today. We got uh, we got Ben Bresky talking about history moment in um, in Brichata Sultan, the Sultan's Pool in Jerusalem. We got Rabbi Shimshon Nadel talking about some very contentious topics about ultra orthodox Jews serving or not serving Ooh, in the army. Here we go. And that's right. We got uh, we got Naji Matar on a on a harsh type of issue. You'll mm-hmm. hear about that in a minute. Okay. And we have Rav Mike Foyer with me talking about one of the most incredible Torah portions with the most amount of laws and 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 um, Jewish. Uh, this is Moses's. Uh, uh, the, the book of Deuteronomy has Moses's long speech, and this is one of the most is the most densely packed Torah portion with laws. Wow! Uh, for for the Jewish people and for the world, fun so, for all the lawyers out there. That's right. Actually, all of us that want to live a life that has a structure and a meaning and a purpose, a structure of holiness. Right. You like that? A structure of holiness. Spirituality is very important. Darn straight. You got to have the the soul connection to God, the soul connection to the people around you, but God also has boundaries. And requirements from the Jewish people. And part of your service is not just about feeling good and connecting and all this stuff, but about doing the things that Hashem said to do the way he said to do them. That's right. And, and you know, Maka, that reminds me to say to people, I sometimes don't think I make it clear. This show is intended for Jews, for lovers of God, uh, for lovers of Israel. And for non-Jews mm-hmm. around the world who want to be part of the story, who want to understand the story better, who want to connect to Torah. I heard somebody wrote uh, an article recently about how they would like it if they were not called non-Jews anymore. A pro-Israel person. Right. I wish that I had the name because I thought this was an interesting article. They were like, we don't want to be known as non-Jews. That's right. It's, it's annoying. That's an it's annoying like term. Jews or non-Jews. Right, right. So like on the one hand, it's like, is Gentile a good word? Uh, I think I think that it that, doesn't often sound good to me, even though it is not derogatory. No, not not at all. I think a great one is the nations, the nations, the, the right. people of the nations. And by the way, I came up with a new stock phrase, which is donations from the nations. Okay, yeah, that's right. <laughs> TM. That's right. Uh, c- continue to help build Israel uh, by doing your part by by being part of the movement of donations from the nations. I like that a lot. Uh, I wasn't planning We're gonna on We're going to get that, that started. That's right. I was not ready to unveil it. Well, That's you right. unveiled it, and now we got to make M- the website. Many unveiled, many unveiled. Yes. Uh, donations from the nations. Um, um, speaking uh, of the nation, uh, our nation is under attack. Israel's under attack yes. right now. Uh, the security folks and the politicians are all admit that we're under a giant wave uh, of attacks, mm-hmm. and... Um, Israel Hayom yesterday came out with a, uh, with a montage of 35 people that have been murdered since the beginning uh, of the year. And so we are in a murder, jihad murder spree. And it's just so, 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 so sickening to, to look at this picture. Uh, and um, right, It's a picture of all the faces of all the right. people that we've lost in just this year. And, and Lowell Lane of the, the year is not over. We just had taken from us a kindergarten teacher. That's right named Batsheva Nigri. She um, was from the Southern Hebron Hills. She lived in Beit Chagai. She lived in, in Beit Chagai uh, near Hebron. Right. And she was with her neighbor, getting a ride, going to go into Efrat to decorate her kindergarten, going to go with her daughter for a little bit of like pre-school year shopping, regular summertime action. 
and someone mowed down the car. Not someone, a jihadist. A jihadist. A jihadist Arab Palestinian activist who terrorist killer. Right. So so uh, she was killed on the spot. Um, the driver, her neighbor, was taken to the hospital. And My friend, Arya Gottlieb. Arya Gottlieb, that, that he should have a refuah shlema. He, um, it's a horrific thing that happened to him, but he also experienced a miracle in that he wasn't hit in any of his uh, major organs, um, which was a very big deal. Um, unfortunately, um, Batsheva's daughter was also in the car, but again, in a bittersweet miracle, she was untouched completely, um, and was not, I mean, untouched physically, right? She was not shot. Um, 22 bullets. 22 bullets went into the car. Are, are, were found, and there's pictures of it on the side of the it's car. So, it's so right. nightmarish. Anyway, so I put a tweet up on uh, X. I can't say it. I don't even care. I put a, tw- a tweet up on Twitter. You put an uh, X up on X. No. That's fine. I put, I put a tweet on Twitter. That's my little pro- like act of protest here on this. So I put a tweet up on Twitter about her. Um, and I was like, you know, she was murdered for like something, something occupation, something, something justice, something, something Palestine, right? The tweet did, um, a lot, it resonated with a lot of people, some like 1300 people hit like on that tweet, but then there were the people who, with whom it did not resonate, um, are haters, right? And, the, and just the things that they say is like, it's so inhuman. It's, it's so... And you would think to yourself that like other what? people... Wait, wait, make it like, clear for people. Make it clear. Okay, I, I, don't have that, I don't have the comments in front of me, but things like, well, you know, she's like a fat Zio-Nazi and it's, it's good that she was like eradicated. She's an occupier. She's a thief. That's what happens to thieves and occupiers. What was she doing there? That's what a lot of people wrote, which I thought was like a very weird thing to write just independently. Like, what was she doing in, in occupied Palestine? Which is like, let's say that she was like stomping around with a frowny face and some military boots on. She's a kindergarten teacher. Like, what do you think she was doing? You think she was uh, pulling okay, grandmothers like- out of their orchards by her by their hair? Like, she was driving down the street. In what world is it okay to say that what Jews should not be walking around? Jews should not be walking around I, I in that area. Like, what are Jews doing there? It's like saying that that if an Arab is walking down the street in a frat, you just shoot him. Like, what was he doing there? It's like he was walking. Like, what are we talking about here? Yeah, I don't quite agree with you uh, because uh, what they're saying is just just to be intellectually like clear about it. They are saying that we don't belong and that we have no rights in this land and this is Arab But you land. don't even have a basic right to no. not die? Right, but that's what they're saying and that's why we should we should hear them and we should be like, okay, this narrative, we have to be clear about it. We have to fight the occupation narrative by making it as clear as possible that we are in our land forever and that this is where we're going to be and we have to make that clear. We can't talk about two-state solutions and all kinds of stuff. We've got to be like... And we can't be supporting the PA. We got to be like, no, this is our land and we're going to be here forever. That's exactly what we're doing. And if we don't make that clear to them, then we, 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 we add to their appetite. You know, Maka, um, I actually uh, went to the street uh, to meet the uh, ambulance and the procession. That, we don't uh, have hearses in Israel. Right, we don't, we don't have use hearses. hearses. Right. We use ambulances, yes. Right. And so this ambulance... Uh, well, well, there uh, are hearses. But anyway, in this case, use an ambulance. And yeah. and it carried the body uh, of Batsheva Negri, and uh, there I also got a chance to speak uh, to one of the great activists and great people of our time, uh, Nadia Matar. Here's my talk with her on the street, exactly as uh, the uh, procession 
uh, of the murdered uh, kindergarten teacher went by. All right, folks. Uh, just a few months ago, I was standing uh, in Efrat, um, waiting for uh, the the ambulance that was taking uh, the wife of uh, Leo D and his two daughters to their funeral after they were murdered in the Samaria region. And uh, since then, I think there was another time. And now, yet again, I'm standing here on the street uh, as a uh, convoy of cars. Uh, is driving by. It's nighttime. It's about 11 at night, 11.30. Uh, and uh, today we are burying uh, Batsheva Negri, uh, who was a young mother uh, and also a kindergarten teacher in Efrat. She was murdered today in a shooting. Uh, 22 bullets hit her the side of her car uh, and uh, took her life. Her daughter was in the back. Also, the guy who uh, took them uh, uh, hitchhiking Tremping, as we say in Israel, uh, is badly injured and fighting for his life. And we're standing here right now, uh, myself with, I don't know, two, three hundred people, two hundred people maybe. Um, and as we are standing here, there's a long line of cars coming up from South Hebron Hills. And they're taking a left here at the Gush Junction, going to the uh, cemetery in Gush Etzion. And I'm standing here with... Uh, the founder of Women in Green, and also the Sovereignty Movement co-founder, Nadia Matar. And Nadia, I saw your WhatsApp saying uh, it's time to come down here and to show the support. And I, uh, I'm with you. I was looking for you, and I wanted to catch a little bit of uh, your voice on uh, this thing that has become a disturbing regular phenomenon. I feel like it's become some kind of, you know, some kind of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, some kind of regular uh, uh, right that we are some kind of p- rite of passage that we are now regularly doing, which is standing out here with flags and 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 giving honor to to the dead. So I wanted to ask you about that. Are we like like is this an absurdity? Is this a beautiful thing that we're doing? Is this a, is this a pathetic thing that we're doing? I'm asking you as as raw and honestly as I can. Ishai, um, standing here with uh, friends who have been doing this together with you and so many others for so many years. Uh, It's such a deja vu. And the feeling of helplessness is really big. And we have to start thinking what should be done. And I think we should connect it to what we're going to be mentioning in a couple weeks, 30 years to the Oslo Accords. And uh, it all started there the crime of Oslo first of all the moral crime of uh, basically agreeing to shake the hands of the mass murderer Yasser Arafat, give him an army but more deeply than that basically acknowledging as if, God forbid this land belongs to him or at least part of it and that was, and now the time has come after 30 years of Oslo when unfortunately Oslo is still alive and kicking, especially in the minds of the military leaders, i.e. accepting this, uh, this uh, group called the Palestinian Authority, which basically is a terrorist organization, but has received the Kashrus uh, 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 by because of the Oslo Agreement, uh, uh, 
everything has to change now. We have to sw- make a switch in our heads after close to 2,000 Jews who were killed because of the Oslo agreements, after the uh, uh, um, uh, terrible tragedy of the Oslo mentality saying that we should give our uh, land to those Arabs, saying that we should give our security to the... We have to make a complete switch. And the cure, I'm sorry to sound um, maybe boring, but the cure will be sovereignty. Meaning the cure to the terrible Oslo agreements is to not just to build another yeshuv and not just to have another few thousand Jews here. Of course, we need to continue building. We need, But the answer... It's to be much bigger than just another settlement or another 10 settlements, communities. The answer has to be a game changer. And the game changer has to be to put an end to the Oslo Accords and to finally be victorious in the Six-Day War, which we didn't win yet. We didn't win the Six-Day War because we didn't apply sovereignty at the time. We had a partial victory, but now we need to be victorious. We need to... Uh, 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 once and for all understand that the Palestinian Authority is no different than Hamas and the Prime Minister today said that Iran is involved here also it's all the same it's all enemies who want to destroy us we have to take responsibility we have to apply sovereignty between the sea and the Jordan River but not only apply sovereignty on paper also implement it and be with a iron fist take care of our right and bring back justice to the Jewish people in their homeland. Until that will be done, we, we got to what, be... To we're going to have to keep standing we'll have like to this. We're going to meet here. Right. And that's what we're going to have to promote. That's what I have to say tonight on this t- terrible, terrible day. So uh, I just want to paint the scene. It's nighttime right now. We're at a pretty lit up junction. Behind us are a lot of soldiers and police. There was a group of Arabs over there and not so far away from them was a group of Settler youth type guys, uh, whom I know partially from uh, helping me build all kinds of different things, and the, and the police came over and, and tried to break up any tension that would be there, and so there's there's a tense moment here. You're here with a lot of your activists. They're collecting the flags now because the caravan has passed, and and, and you you basically said, look look, the Oslo mindset is still with us. Uh, it's still in the military's mind, but let's be real for a second, Nadia. Oslo as a as a um, reality on the ground is super real. It's not just a mentality. It's it's just it's in it's place. Alive and kicking. It's a it's it's they're, they're taking over our land. Every minute that we speak on the phone or on this radio show, they took over the the Arab uh, Palestinian Authority, funded by American and European anti-Israeli NGOs, uh, um, are taking over area C of our land and are building a de facto... Not to mention A and B. A and B, of course. uh, Are building a de facto Palestinian state. And uh, the answer to that, as I said, is not going to be just another uh, community here or there, which, of course, has to be built. But you're you're very practical. You've always been a very practical activist. Uh, We're standing right across from one of your great successes, which is the Ozengon Park area which basically you took an area that was going to be taken over by the Palestinian Authority and, and give it, gave it Jewish life, uh, Israeli life. So you're a very practical thinker, he, he, uh, an activist. Here we have now a super-nationalist government. As we say in Hebrew, yamin male male, that's the, the, the catchphrase, full, a full, full. full right-wing government. And yet 
the wheels of the bureaucracy do not turn easily, it seems. It seems like we just, we just, we just can't get out. And I, I also heard a report just the other day that Ron Dermer, I don't know if it's true or not, but I heard the report on the news that they said that Ron Dermer was talking with Blinken or whoever at the uh, Secretary of State about the future of the two-state solution again. And so, and so how do we... Okay, like, I, I hear you, sovereignty, yes. But, like, what do we need to do? Do we need another right-wing government? Is that what the, the key is? Like, how do, we, how do we shift the gears to actually get what is so sensical and obvious in place? Because the other side is exactly what you said. The Palestinians are building a Palestinian state in two phases. One is in physical buildings, and two is in the consciousness around the world. And that I see it on Twitter. I see it on Instagram. They are succeeding in their consciousness building around the world to defame Israel and to build Palestine on our land. We have to understand that, uh, first of all, that our friends who are in the government now are people who really want to and believe, like us, in our right to this land. But then they became ministers and they realized that there is no magic here. You can't, within a few months, overturn 30 or 40 or 50 years of left-wing dictatorship, basically, uh, uh, and, and, and elite ruling. And... We need to, on the one hand, strengthen them to continue to be right-wing and have patience and also make sure that some people on the right, without mentioning names, who might be a little weaker and who might want to cave in, they have to understand that the only way they can stay in power is if they stick to the right-wing policies. So we have a very difficult job as right-wing activists now. Nobody wants this government to fall because there's not going to be a better right-wing government. And we have to make sure to strengthen them, but also that they shouldn't feel that they can just do nothing. So we are in a very difficult position of if we thought that after a right-wing government comes to power, we can go and rest, then we now found out that not. There's a very huge, important demonstration on September 7th, which is related to the judicial reform. And also now we see that the left came, uh, came out in masses to the streets, and we have to come out and strengthen this government to to enforce what they were elected to do and that will only happen if they feel our uh, us you have to understand our ministers are suffering daily harassments by the left mm-hmm. every minister is being waited at home by Michigan anarchists who disturb their lives and who are driving them crazy and we have to be there to counteract that and uh, uh, so we have a lot of work. We have a lot of work. We have a work to strengthen them. We have to work to remind them what they have to do and to give them also tachlis, what should be done, which, is, which we believe in the sovereignty movement, Judith Katzover and myself and the whole group, that we should promote sovereignty because that's a game changer. All the other things need to be done, of course. We need to enter all the Arab villages, take away their weapons. We need to continue building Jewish communities. But it's not going to work if there's no sovereignty. Sovereignty is the game changer. And if we have to start with something very tachless, first the Jordan Valley. The Jordan Valley first, because over 90% of the area there is Area C. It's completely empty. There's very few Arabs. The Jordan Valley first has a big consensus. That's what should be done tomorrow. All right, Nadja, uh, 22 bullets hit a car today. No, it's not 22 bullets that hit a car today, and the same way that it is not that stones, somebody, stones were thrown at somebody. Arab terrorists th- uh, shot 22 bullets at a Jewish woman in order to murder her and the other people. 
And uh, when they say stones are being thrown, Arab terrorists throw stones, and we have to finally deal with it. All right, from uh, Tsumet Agush, I hope not to see you again here soon. Likewise. That is intense stuff. I remember thinking to myself, that was a very very hard hard, and it was it was also very like there was such a surreal atmosphere out there in the streets that night uh, a few nights ago, and it was just so foggy and cold, and I don't know. It was there was something about it. It was haunting. It was a little bit a little bit of a haunting. I mean, maybe you're you lucky. Hear that. You're lucky in a certain way that the, that's how it was because that's, right. that's that's what's going on. That's the feeling that that people are getting out here. And you know, Ishai, I've seen like a lot of people like this is not the kind of thing I like to usually say, but I'm going to say it anyway, which is a lot of people who were very excited about this government are starting to get fed up. There are a lot of people who were excited about the most right wing government in Israel's history, about some hardliners coming into power. Um, And these people are starting to feel let down. This is a very, this is a moment at which the government really needs to regroup, understand what it is that they were elected for, why at all they came into power, which really was primarily a security-based and Jewish identity-based platform. That's right. And they need to start serving the people again. I mean, as if they need a reminder that it should have been from day one, right? But. Right. But if they have lost the plot, maybe because of confusion from, you know, and distraction from the judicial reform things or whatever, they need to come back and realize that the whole reason that this government was formed was that the Jewish people could feel safe and free in the land of Israel. That's right, Malka. You're absolutely right. Um, uh, and I think they want to. And I think that their claim is that they uh, have not been given the tools to do so. Uh, but there are things in motion right now sadly it takes these murders to like pe- get people like to to wake up but there are things in motion now and i and i really do pray that this government will uh not just deal with the terrorists who come at us but start to uh starts to dismantle the terrorist infrastructure right, shift within. the pattern here shift, shift 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 the paradigm uh malka uh first thing is to do is to shift a pattern and the stuff that you read about israel and the news out of israel I highly recommend people check out JNS.org and JewishPress.com uh, to really get a sense of what's going on in Israel in a healthy way. Uh, I'm going to say it here. Stay away from Times of Israel. Stay away from that. That, that newspaper is full of poison and anti-Israelism. Uh, and I much, I, I know if you need to read that for balance, then go ahead. But I think that JNS.org and JewishPress.com will give you a much finer sense of really what's going on and uh, with a healthy mindset. Uh, and um, just to go the other direction altogether, which is uh, if you're if you're already consuming good uh, good media content, you also need to consume some great Jewish food like Prohibition Pickle. Prohibitionpickle.co.il makes your Shabbat so mu- so much fun. And I forgot to mention in the last few weeks that um, a great way to support your f- favorite show hosts on the Land of Israel Network. Uh, or on any other platforms, you know, stuff out of Israel, is go to prohibitionpickle.co.il and just tell them I want to send a uh, beautiful Shabbat uh, package meal or whatever, a, uh, you know, some, some goodies uh, out to my friends here in the Holy Land. It's a great way. And, of course, those friends, including yours truly and Malka, uh, will be happy to bless you at our Shabbat table. So that's prohibitionpickle.co.il. 
And of course, you want to get to the land of Israel yourself. And we have so many ways to get people to help people get here. One is uh, Kaplan Custom Tours that help you uh, prepare your trip, uh, the details of your trip, and create a great itinerary and get you the best tour guides. So that's Mo Kaplan at gmail.com. That's Kaplan Custom Tours, Mo Kaplan at gmail.com. Uh, and our good friends at Kosher Cycle Tours that will, you know, just do that, give you a kosher tour on a bicycle, and you'll be able to ride in style in the land of Israel and around the world in, 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 in a kosher and awesome way. So that's some of the great friends that, uh, that, that make the show uh, possible. Malka, um, um, one of the things that makes Israel possible is the Israeli army, but does everybody need to go serve in the Israeli army? Like, some people don't serve, and that's, you know... Well, some people say that it's, you know, why should my son uh, be endangered and someone else's son not be endangered? And other people say, I serve the, the country in a different way through learning Torah. Uh, and our own Rabbi Shimshon Akonedel, who loves to tackle the issues. That's one of his, his great, his uh, many great attributes. One of them is that he loves to tackle and unpack the very issues that are troubling uh, our society or challenging our society. And today, Rabbi Shimshon Koyin Adela is with us to discuss the issue of serving in the army for the ultra-Orthodox. Shalom Yishai. Tensions are high right now in the state of Israel, as the current law exempting yeshiva students from mandatory service in the Israel Defense Forces expired at the end of June with the ultra-Orthodox parties threatening to leave the current coalition and dissolve the government if a new law granting exemptions is not immediately passed after the Knesset's summer recess ends on October 15th. Exemptions for yeshiva students has been a sore topic since Israel's Supreme Court declared the Tal law unlawful in February of 2012, undoing the decades-long status quo whereby full-time students were exempt from service in the IDF. Advocates of maintaining the status quo argue that those studying Torah provide a spiritual protection to the state of Israel and that Jewish law allows for exemptions of yeshiva students. But what does Jewish law really require? The Mishnah in the eighth chapter of Tractate Sota states, in a Melchemet mitzvah, a mandatory war, all go out to battle, even a groom from his room and a bride from her wedding canopy. Drawing on language from the book of Yoel by mentioning bride and groom, the Mishnah expresses a certain urgency and the necessity for everyone's involvement. And while many explain that women are exempt from combat, they are nevertheless obligated to assist in the war effort. In the fifth chapter of his Laws of Kings, the Rambam defines a milchemet mitzvah a mandatory war as, quote, a war against the seven nations of Canaan, a war against Amalek, and assisting Israel from the hand of the enemy who comes up against them. With enemy states on our borders and the constant threat of terrorism within, we find ourselves today embroiled in a melchemet mitzvah, a national security situation which demands everyone's participation. This past week alone, three Israeli citizens were brutally murdered in cold blood. Those who seek exemption from serving in the IDF argue that Torah Tan Omanutan, 
Torah, study, is their sole occupation. They point to the end of the laws of Shemitah and Yovel, where the Rambam himself writes that the tribe of Levi is exempt from going to war as they are the army of God, so to speak. As the spiritual leaders of the Jewish people, they do not inherit a portion in the land and their material needs are provided for by the rest of the Jewish people. The Rambam continues and writes that any individual, quote, whose spirit moves him, can devote himself solely to Torah study, just like the tribe of Levi, divorced of all material concerns and worries and free from the burden of army service. Quote, such an individual is consecrated as the holy of holies. But this passage is very difficult to understand. Commentaries on the Rambam struggle to find a Talmudic source for this ruling. Some point to a passage in Tractate Nidarim where our own patriarch Avraham is criticized for drafting Torah scholars in the war of the four kings against the five, or a passage in Tractate Sota, which relates how King Asa was punished for mobilizing Torah scholars. Also difficult, the Rambam himself rules that even a bride and groom must assist in the war effort, as we've mentioned. And by suggesting that Torah scholars can look to their brethren for financial support, the Rambam appears to contradict what he writes in his commentary to the Mishnah and Tractate Avot and to his laws of Torah study, where in the third chapter he decries those who rely upon others for their livelihood. Analyzing this passage, Rabbi Aaron Lichtenstein of blessed memory, who for many years was at the helm of Yeshivat Haaretz Zion, questioned how many people would fit into the Rambam's criteria and asked in an article, The Ideology of Hezder, which was published in the Torah journal Tradition in the fall of 1981, he asked, quote, who can confront a mirror and tell himself that he ought not to go into the army because he is Kodesh Kodashim Sanctum Sanctorum, Holy of Holies in the Rambam's terms. It would appear that the Rambam's ruling in the laws of Shemitah and Yovel is not the rule, but the exception to the rule. His allowance is reserved for those select few individuals who are able to devote themselves solely and wholly to the service of God, exempting entire segments of the population from army service and from pursuing a parnasai livelihood is certainly not what the Rambam intended. Additionally, the mitzvot of saving Jewish life, bikuach nefesh, and not standing by the blood of one's fellow, lo ta'amod al damre echa, obligate one to save life and protect life. The Rambam in his laws of Shabbat writes, quote, it is mandatory for every Jew who is able to come and assist his brethren under siege and save them from the hand of the enemy on Shabbat. Here, the Rambam does not allow for any exceptions or exemptions. And while some authorities like Rabbi Isaac Herzog, Rabbi Tzvi Pesach Frank, Rabbi Yaakov Moshe Charlap, and Rabbi Eliezer Waldenberg allowed for the exemption of yeshiva students in the very early days of statehood, in an essay published in 1948, Rabbi Shlomo Yosef Zevin challenged them and asked, quote, from what source do you derive that Torah scholars are exempt from participating in a milchemet mitzvah, assisting Israel from the hand of the enemy who comes up against them, who threaten to destroy them, heaven forbid. 
Rabbi Zevin continues and argues that when Jewish life is at stake, no one may sit idly by. To understand those who ruled against drafting yeshiva students, one must appreciate the state of religious life in the young country, this nascent nation following the Holocaust, when so much Torah had been destroyed and decimated. Those studying Torah full-time were charged with the task of rebuilding Torah here in the state of Israel. When Rabbi Avraham, Yeshaya Karlitz, the revered Chazon Ish, together with other leading rabbis, reached a compromise with David Ben-Gurion to provide exemptions for yeshiva students, only some 400 students were exempted from army service. Writing about a milchemic mitzvah, a mandatory war, the Chazon Ish himself recognized that, quote, if there is a need for them, they must come to the aid of their brethren. In recent years and decades, those 400 exemptions have grown exponentially. Moshe's rebuke of the tribes of Ruvain and God, shall your brothers go out to battle while you sit here, resonates with those who see the imbalance in the current situation. And for those concerned about their spiritual life while serving in the army, Hezder and Nachal Haredi units have proven that a healthy balance between Torah study and army service can indeed be achieved. As the Midrash states, the sword and the sefer, the book, are bound up together. True, while not every student may be needed in combat, the current security situation in the state of Israel requires that everyone contribute some form of service to the country. Instead of seeing army service as a burden or a compromise, one should see it for the tremendous mitzvah that it really is. Wishing all of the listeners blessings from Jerusalem. Good stuff, Rabbi Shimshon Nadel, and he promised me that this would raise some eyebrows, uh, this segment, so I'm excited to hear what you guys think about it. Write me an email, yishai at yishaifleischer.com. Uh, that was good good Torah, definitely, Amalka. Um, um, speaking of Torah, imein kemach in Torah, if there is no uh, if there is no flower, there is no Torah. Flower means to say, like, money, and if you want to transfer money into the land of Israel... There's no better way to do it than a dark currencies and uh, the company called Change86. I highly recommend them. Uh, I use them myself. YossiChange86 at gmail.com. Just write to Yossi, Y-O-S-S-I, Change86 at gmail.com. Uh, Malka Fleischer, um, summer's coming to an end. Uh, a little bit more time to, uh, to see the land, to vacation a little bit. Uh, and Rosh Hashanah's coming. I didn't mention it last week's show. It's Elul time. It's the month before. Oh, all my friends at the, uh, uh, the International Torah Congregation, uh, all, of my, all of my nation's friends, you have to know that it is Elul. It is the preparatory month for Rosh Hashanah. We are now in preparation. We are talking tshuva and repentance. Tshuva, yeah, tshuva repentance. Right? That's right. We're talking about getting just a little bit better and a little bit closer. God is in the field. That's right. That means he's with us. He's not in the palace right. up all high on his big fancy chair. 
but he's walking through and that means you can get closer and you can ask for what you need and you can talk to him you can get counsel you can just see his face and feel the closeness of the great king so that's the word for today we're gonna we're gonna learn a hebrew word now everybody say this even if you know it hamelech basadeh well it's not a word two words hamelech basadeh the king is in the field hamelech basadeh hamelech Basadeh. Okay. Yes, ha-melech. good enough. Yeah, that's right. Hamelech basadeh. Hamelech basadeh. The king is in field. And we sing. Hamelech basadeh. Hamelech basadeh. Hamelech basadeh. Basadeh. Speaking of music, uh, our own uh, uh, roving reporter, Ben Bresky, was in the Sultan's Pool, which is a very unique uh, spot in Jerusalem, a kind of pool area, a kind of valley right next to the old city of Jerusalem, right next to the old city walls, and he explored it a little bit. And he tells right. us it's a also, place with lots of like awesome concerts. That's right. Speaking of concerts, do you know stuff. who's coming there? Like August thirty first, Shlomo Artsy. Do you remember that you and I saw Shlomo Artsy at Sultan's Pool? I saw this such a cool concert that's going on, like a Slichot concert. Yeah, with all these like cool Israeli artists. Who's there? So I didn't. Moshe Benari, Shlomo Artsy, Ehud Banai. What? I know Slichot. All right, so without any further ado, here is Ben Bresky with Brechatul Sultan, the Sultan's Pool. This is a moment in Jewish history. Last week, I attended the Hutzot Hayotzer Festival in Jerusalem, an arts and crafts fair with vendors from Israel and around the world, with music, food, and more. As I wandered past the stalls, I saw jewelry, clothing, and art from Peru, Uzbekistan, Bolivia, Hungary, Ecuador, South Korea, and more. There was a variety of Israeli locally produced handcrafted items on sale. A musical act called Cafe Tav performed a mix of cabaret and ethnic music with dancers who encouraged audience participation, jugglers, and acrobats. Different food from Israeli restaurants served falafel and hummus, as well as a variety of food from different cultures. This part of the event was held in the area called Hutzot Hayotzer, while next to it, in the Sultan's Pool, a large concert stage had big-name Israeli acts performing. These two areas are located right across the streets from the old city of Jerusalem. The area of buildings called Hutzot Hayotzer housed an artist's colony year-round, where artists create and sell their works in a strip of buildings that date back to the 1930s. The neighborhood was once called Jurat al-Anab and was founded by a few dozen poor Jewish families approximately in 1892. The residents were mostly Moroccan and North African Jews who lived in the then overcrowded old city of Jerusalem. They purchased the land from an Arab cattle dealer, among the founders were the families Elbaz, Nachmias, Turgman, Cohen, and more. The neighborhood at its peak consisted of about 50 buildings, one of which housed the synagogue and Talmud Torah school. The Nobel Prize-winning Israeli author S.Y. Agnon described the neighborhood in his famous book Tumol Shoshom. He looked up and realized he was standing by the Jurat al-Anab neighborhood of Jerusalem. This poor neighborhood is extremely crowded. Each one of its 47 apartment buildings is living quarters for approximately 20 people. Some of them are porters, some leather workers, some cobblers, and some peddlers. 
Agnon's novel describes Jerusalem from the years 1908 to 1911. There were two flour mills in the neighborhood, one belonging to the Berman family, owners of Berman's Bakery. Begun in the old city, Berman's is arguably the oldest in the country and today the second largest bakery in Israel. An old millstone used to grind flour is still on display there. The population of the neighborhood, for the most part, was considered to have a low socioeconomic status. The Jewish neighborhood was targeted and residents harassed in such incidents as the Nebi Musa riots of 1920, the massacre of 1929, and the revolt of 1936. During this period, many Jewish families abandoned the neighborhood for security reasons, and Arab families began to move in. The 1939 census indicated only a few Jewish families left. The War of Independence and the invasion of Jerusalem by the Jordanians began in 1948, and the neighborhood was abandoned. The municipal line, which divided East Jerusalem and West Jerusalem, passed through, with the old city being part of Jordan, and the old Jurat al-Anab neighborhood becoming part of the buffer zone in between the two countries. The houses of the neighborhood remained abandoned and partially destroyed, and from time to time children from the neighborhood of Mamila would venture in. In 1967, the Six-Day War unified the city, and great effort was made in rehabilitation. The shops were restored under the direction of Jerusalem's longtime mayor, Teddy Kalik, who sought to bring in artists, and the first Tutsot Hayotzer festival began in 1969. In the 1990s, the fair began to invite artists from abroad and featured an international pavilion, and by the 2000s, big-name Israeli singers were added to perform at the Sultan's Pool. Today, the Sultan's Pool features a stage and seating for large outdoor concerts. This ancient water basin was used as a supply network for Jerusalem from the late Second Temple period to the late Ottoman period. It was established by building a dam across the Ben Hinnom Valley, which stopped the drainage of the ravine south toward the Kidron Stream and created a water reservoir. An aqueduct carried water from Solomon's Pools near Bethlehem to Jerusalem and the Temple Mount. A covered and plastered hewn channel from the Roman period was discovered along the entire length of the pool, believed to be from the time of King Herod the Great. The pool itself is built on earlier pools, and some researchers identify it with the Snake Pool, mentioned by the historian Josephus. In the Crusader period, the pool was called Lacus Germani. Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent renovated and enlarged the pool in the 18th century, and some of what he added can still be seen today. Between 1948 and 1967, this too was part of the no-man's land between Israel and Jordan. A far cry from the thousands of cheering fans who enjoyed Hebrew rock, rap, ethnic, and traditional music as people from all over enjoyed music, food, and art. There are many other historic neighborhoods that have undergone ups and downs, but that is a podcast for another time. This has been a moment in Jewish history. Thank you to Yishai Fleischer. Thank you to all the listeners and subscribers. And Shalom. All right. Thank you very much, Ben. That was awesome. Very interesting. I love that place. The Brachat Sultan, the Sultan's Pool. Great place in Yerushalayim, Jerusalem. Speaking of, I want you to consider supporting the Jewish communities uh, of Israel, especially Hebron, uh, where I have the honor of working. And a good friend of mine, Matthew, 
recently uh, gave a, a, a great donation to the Jewish community of Hebron to strengthen us, and I want to honor that, and I want to thank all the folks that understand the importance of keeping this place strong. This is our fort. This is our Alamo. Uh, this is our. Uh, this is the root of Jewish peoplehood, and the haters of Israel want to uproot it. And and the worst is the people who are ignorant of the forefathers and mothers and the Jewish past of the first the first city of the Jewish kingdom in the land of Israel. And so Hebron, that's that's hebronfund.org, and come on our tours, hebronfund.org forward slash tours. And, uh, of course, if you want to touch, not the forefathers and mothers, which is in Hebron, but if you want to touch the, the root of the formation of this world, God's holy abode, where he hangs out, Yoshev Tzion, he sits in Zion. If you want to touch that holy place, you come up to the Temple Mount with High on the Har, highonthehar.com. Uh, uh, check them out. They will take you to the, holy, to the holiest place on earth in holiness. Maka Fleischer, you got to go pick up one of our kids. And so, therefore, I want to let you go. And I want to give you a, a great blessing to have a, a good trip there and back safely. Uh, and in general, uh, continue to do your holy work in this world. And uh, may all of us take inspiration from you to prepare for a Rosh Hashanah properly uh, and have a Shana Tovah Mutukah and have in. a great Elul. Yes, I'm in. Thank you. Give everybody a blessing, Malka. Come on. Wow, okay. I want to give everyone a blessing first for, for safety and health. If you got safety and health, you're already like. 85% in good situation. Right. So I want to give everyone a, b- a bracha for, for safety and health. And I want to bless all of us who are looking for, um, sometimes you get down, you know? And I find that, that especially in these times, in the, in the month of Elul, when you get down, that's actually not the worst. Because this time is such an auspicious time for prayer that sometimes I think that Hashem gives some people an extra hard time right now so that your prayer will become like super awesome so that your desire to connect to Hashem, your understanding of where good times come from, where bad times come from, what a good time is, what a bad time even are is, what those things are, you your, your understanding is deeper. And so when you when you pray, when you try to break you know, your fears or your negativities or whatever, then you have like extra supercharged success. Mm -hmm. And so I want to say that for anyone out there who's like facing a hard time right now, hang in there, hang in there. This is a time of, of, uh, of uh, miracles. And it's a time where we crown the king. This is voting time. I like to say every year I vote uh, every year in the elections and I vote for God every time and make sure that that's what you're doing too. Um, and vote for yourself also, you know, vote for yourself and, and understand that you're on Hashem's ticket. Very good. And that he wants to, to take you with him into the next uh, administration. And uh, with, God's, with God's help, we'll all uh, have good positions in the administration and with excellent benefits and uh, company car. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Okay, Malka, and don't forget to pick up that other kid that's coming with our child home. Yes. Don't forget Thank him. you, okay, yes. Thank I remember you. that. Thanks a lot. <laughs> okay, Malka, Shabbat, Shabbat, Shabbat Shalom. Thank you so much. And speaking of Shabbat, uh, we have now a segment that I did uh, yesterday with Rav Mike Foyer in preparation of this very special Torah portion of Ki which is one of my favorite Torah portions in the book of Deuteronomy for sure. Ki Milchama, when you go out to war with a lot of amazing laws. And here is my discussion with Rav Mike here on the Yishai Fleischer Show on the Land of Israel, and on the Land of Israel Network and on the Yishai Fleischer uh, Network of stuff found at YishaiFleischer.com. All right, everybody. Shalom and welcome to the Yishai Fleischer Show. We are broadcasting live right now. I am in Hebron and I'm joined 
by Rav Mike Foyer. Shalom, Rav Mike. How are you? Shalom, Yishai. It's good to see you. It's good to see you, and um, I'm really glad you're joining me today. Uh, it hasn't been an easy week. Uh, this week uh, already went to a funeral of a, a murdered lady, a kindergarten teacher from uh, in my in the town that I live in, Gush Etzion, and um, also a, a resident of South Hebron Hills. Uh, her name was Batsheva, and she... Um, uh, was in a, in a lift. She got she got picked up by a friend who happens to be a buddy of mine, uh, who who lives in uh, in uh, Beit Chagai, and their car was shot up by jihadist terrorists, uh, who have recently been caught also. Uh, but we w went to her funeral. I went to her. I, actually, I didn't go to the funeral. I went to the flag standing at attention as the as as the ambulance carrying her her body to her you know final resting place. Um, I, I don't know, Rav Mike. You know, uh, I know that you have uh, another hat. One hat you have is is your history shows, but the other hat that you have is also spiritual counseling. Like, um, you know, for those of us who, you know, feel the pain, and I also dealt with with folks in diaspora, and I and I found that some just really didn't want to so much. They said the right things, the conciliatory things, but it's like it's almost like you want to look away after a while. So I just wanted to ask you, like, first, like, let's just. You know, what would you counsel somebody coming to you for, you know, how to deal with this kind of trauma included in that is not that there's just bad guys who want to kill. There's also a government who cannot manifestly defeat the bad guys. And then there's also the Twitter sphere and the social media sphere where where when, when Mark and I write things like, there was, you know, a horrific murder. There is hundreds of responses saying, basically, you deserved it since you're land thieves, etc. And the occupation narrative. So, um, how would you how would you cancel uh, counsel us uh, to deal with uh, this? Um, you know, both both the, the the destruction of life, the weakness of the government, and the 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 the, the, the global support for jihadism against us. Wow, that's uh, not a small set of questions. Let's start with the with the most visceral first. Is that a trauma like this type of murder, whether it's personal, God forbid, for the for the family and friends, whether it's um, sort of felt like as part of the national story, um, or I meaning for those of us here in communities, um, or whether like you're identifying with the diaspora where it seems a little distant, but it's still a pressing issue. The first step in dealing with it is um, giving space to the natural emotions that arise whether it's anger whether it's fear whether it's sadness and not trying to rationalize or justify or fit this experience too quickly into a narrative actually mm -hmm. i think that that's part of the problem and that may be part of the sort of almost arm's length response you feel like you get from the diaspora in particular is that unfortunately it's a story we all know and it becomes much more manageable when we fit it into the ongoing story, right? The continuing sacrifice, the cost of the occupation for the left, the you know the sacrifices we make for reclaiming our land for the right, etc. And those narratives are important, but 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 if you don't give space to the pain, and to the fear, and the anger, and the sadness, then you risk first of all dishonoring those who've been lost. Because fitting them too quickly into a story is, to a certain degree, denying their very special, unique humanity. But also, I think what it does is it prevents us from taking the next step relating to your other questions, which is genuinely facing the problem. 
right? Because because we're used to a story which has no solution, right? It's just you know, like I said, from the left, it's it's just the price we pay for our intransigence and in the occupation. For the for the right, it's it's um the cost of you know settling the land. Now, uh, rightly or wrongly, neither of those actually is a productive approach to the problem of allowing violent oppositional jihadist culture, not just to survive, but really thrive in our land. And so that, that goes to the next question is that how do we relate to a government, which I don't know if we're incapable. I don't know because I, I'm not, I'm not a security expert. I'm not a political expert, you know, like yourself, but one thing is, is fairly clear to me is that there aren't so many interests in winning right now. Right, meaning there seems to be a lot of interest, especially over the last since Oslo, basically, in a holding pattern. Um, less so, obviously, in the leadership of Yudan Shomron, because there's still a sense that there's an active attempt to sort of reclaim our heartland. And but even there, I think that there's a terrible blind spot, which is that that what we're after is sovereignty, and you will never have sovereignty until you relate to the reality of however many, you know, Arab citizens or non-Arab residents, let's say, there are there. Meaning, you can relate to that reality in any number of ways. You can take a path of one-state citizenship. You could speak about, you know, um, resident alien. You could do, uh, I'm not getting into the solution, but, but, but sovereignty means power plus responsibility. So on the left, they don't want power, and they're willing to give it up in order to avoid responsibility. On the right, there's too much of an urge to power without taking responsibility, and that that ties our hands. You know, you take something like um, Hoara, where this murder, like two murders ago, I hate to say such a thing, but like within the space of a week, like you pointed out. Why is Hoara Junction actually still functioning outside of the realm of Israeli sovereignty right now, with the number of murders that have happened there? And I can say, why is Hawara Junction still standing and be burnt to the ground in that sort of revenge desire, which I, I do understand. But that revenge desire is also an avoidance of sovereignty. It's destroy instead of rule. Right? But the, the vision of Hawara needs to be a place where everybody, Jews, citizens, soldiers, civilians, Arabs, can like do their shopping and get your car washed in peace. You know, again. If that's a real aspiration, then we need to speak about tactics, but I question whether it's an aspiration. And that's the last piece I'll offer, is that it's without clear vision and a vision that can be crystallized in specific actionable goals, we will keep repeating the stories right. that we already know. This is what I can tell you from my counseling. This is what people do. If you don't have a clear vision and goals that are oriented toward realizing that vision, you will repeat the stories that you are already living over and over again as much as you think you want to change. That's my short answer. It's hard to tra transition between a place of lack of vision and to come to a place of a vision, especially dealing with very hard things. And the other side uh, has a very clear vision, and they articulate it very strongly that we are foreigners, that we are occupiers, that Israel is not meant to be here, that the whole thing is a colonialist enterprise. And then you have even good Jews, uh, good pro-Israel Jews like Daniel Gordas and... Uh, uh, like uh, uh, what's his name, Kleina Levy, and um, and and uh, and Mati Friedman, and these guys are like on a bandwagon right now to try to boycott this particular government, right? And these guys come yeah. off as like they they are like big Zionists, 
and yet and yet they basically are calling for something that's not so different from the other boycotters. It's just that they want to limit it in scope a little bit more. And and what I my argument to them is what you don't understand is you are empowering the haters of Israel. The haters of Israel are like, look, even great Zionists like like Daniel Gordas are uh, are saying that this government is racist, et cetera, and therefore the, the whole enterprise is racist. And Israeli people voted for racism. So these folks that are you know trying to limit their attack onto this government, they don't see that they are actually causing tremendous damage to the very name of Israel and empowering the very anti-Semites that they seek to 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 stave off. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you say they don't see it. I I, I think that particularly uh, in particular Daniel Gordis and um, Yitzhak Levy are two very intelligent, very discerning people. And maybe maybe it's true they don't see it, or maybe that what we're looking at as we're seeing in the streets with the protest movement is an identity battle. And the, and and the reality is is that um, this is this is a battle for people really feel for the soul of of the the state of Israel for the soul of the Jewish people and they're willing to sacrifice you know and, and, and foolishly many things which they hold to be dear um and because I agree with you there's no distinction being drawn outside of our internal Jewish discourse which is a classic Jewish problem we are people of nuance we're, we're splitters, not lumpers, meaning we, we divide. It's because we care about the truth. Let's remember, there's a, obviously, a, as we say, a tikkun and a kilkul. There's a, 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 a rectified and a corrupt version of this. But because we're people who care so much about the truth and the specificity matters, that's why we split hairs over almost everything, right? But the problem is, is that's completely lost outside of internal Jewish dialogue. And, um, and, and, it, and it, it does us damage, even though it's, in the end of the day, it's true to who we are. So it's a, there's a challenge there in how to manage that dynamic. Basis, splitters, not lumpers. Um, that's a really fun one. Um, that's, a, like, that's a term from taxonomy, if you're not familiar. There are splitters and there are lumpers. I did not know that. Is yeah, when you're trying to put in things into like a genius or species, it's that at a certain point, it gets fuzzy. So people lean towards splitting and some towards lumping, you know? Is a platypus really a monotreme or is it just a, a mammal with some some species issues? <laughs> uh, it's uh, Here it is. I put it up on the screen. Jews are splitters, not lumpers. Okay. How's that? Okay. Uh, uh, I, like that. I like that. I like that. But, but speaking of lumping, um, here's, the, here's the front cover of yesterday's uh, Israel Hayom. Oh, yeah. I saw that. And it's got, it's got like... 35 people who've been murdered yeah. uh, from the beginning of, of the secular year. And, and that's, that's, that's painful stuff. Yeah. And for me, as a number of people have noted in the media, it really brings to mind how bad things were when I first, when I made Aliyah in 2001, it was in the midst of the, the Oslo war, so-called second intifada. Um, and, and that was the last time we reached this number, but there at least we knew we were at war. And this, by the way, is part of the part of the um, answer to your question that I didn't get to, which is that we need to accept the reality that we're at war. We've right. built suburbia on a battlefield, and we and we're now complaining when when mortars land in our playgrounds. Now, again, I'm not justifying the mortars. You follow, but but part of the problem lies with us is you cannot build suburbia in a battlefield and then wonder why people are attacking your children. You need to fight like it's war. And and and, and by the way. 
right? Like it's actually not the kitete of our parsha this week. It's kitete that comes in last week. But you know what Rashi says when you go out to battle against your enemies? Rashi says, well, that's redundant. You don't go out to battle against your friends. You know, Rashi brings the Midrash. What's it say? Why does it say against your enemies? You got to know to recognize your enemies. Not just that. You have to remember that they are your enemies and they right. will treat you cruelly. They are not your brothers. So when you go out to war, you need to fight to win. And, and this is our problem, is that for, for many reasons, lack of vision, fear of the grandeur of what victory might mean, fear of the challenge of what it means to be a Jew, for goodness sake, these things are preventing us from fighting for victory. And that's immoral, I think, on all fronts. You know, and, and nobody suffers for that more. I, I hate to put it because I'm not into relative suffering, and, but nobody suffers for that more than the Arabs. Our inability to fight toward victory, they actually suffer primarily. You know, and, and, which is odd because if you start talking about victory, everything's your right-wing nut that wants to kill Arabs. That's just not my point at all. No, I, I, I want to bring actually a, order, a higher order and a better life for everyone involved. But in order to have true sovereignty, then we need to think about what victory looks like and then pursue it. So let's talk a little bit about, about Jewish-style victory. And one of the things that our Torah talks about in this week's Torah portion, uh, there's, there's a few different discussions about war already leading from last week's Torah portion. First, we learned that you're not supposed to cut down a fruit tree when you're besieging a city uh, and that you have to make a distinction between, um, you know, the fruit tree is not like a man that you have to kind of kill. And you, have to, you have to respect the fact that there's this thing past the war that you have right now. There's, there's the fruit tree that's going to give fruit past the conflict that you have right now, so be careful about that. Uh, similarly, in this week's Torah portion, it tells us that you're not supposed to take the mother bird along with the eggs when you're trying to take the eggs or the, or the chicks of a bird. And my mother explained to me that I liked her explanation so much is that um, it's for the sake of um, continue, what do we call it? Uh, re- renewable energy. Sustainable, sustainable, sustainable resource. Yeah, right, yeah, sustainable yeah. resource. That's right. So it's like it's like the mother has a chance to continue to be procreative in this world. Okay, take the eggs, but don't 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 wipe out a whole system of creativity in this world. So I think I think those two are very similar. Don't cut down the fruit tree. Don't take the mother bird together. Uh, and and yet there's another thing, which is um, you're going out to war. War is a sweaty, smelly, dirty thing. Uh, uh, a Army camp is just that. Even the most orderly has an element of, you know, there's not a feminine touch in it. And it is, it is a, you know, it, it's a, it's a thing. It's a machine of violence. It's really a, 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 an organized violence. And yet uh, the Torah tells us um, when you, when you camp against your enemies, you shall be aware of everything evil in your camp. Meaning to say, keep your camp clean. Um, for example, if there is amongst you a man who is unclean because of an external emission, he shall go outside the camp. He shall not come within the camp. And then he shall, uh, and it shall be towards evening, he shall bathe in water. And when the sun sets, he may come into the camp. It's like, wait a minute, he touched an unclean thing or a body? Like, big deal. Like, that's exactly what you guys are there to do. No, you got to be careful with that. So don't touch a dead body. And here's, here's one that may surprise people. A relative of a dead body, re- a related concept, is 
uh, our going to the bathroom uh, in the sense that these are uh, unclean things and they're the opposite of, of life in the sense that it's the excrement of, 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 of life. It's the end of it, ostensibly. And the Torah tells us it keeps going. It says, uh, and you shall have a designated place outside the camp that you could go out to the bathroom there or use as a privy, the translation says, but basically use it as a toilet. And you shall keep a stake, meaning to say a, a little uh, digging tool. Trowel. Trowel, in addition to your weapons. So you have your weapons. You have your M16, but you got to have a trowel. And well, it shall be with an M16 is a waste of effort. A what? Yeah, digging with oh, an M16, not good. That's right. When you, when you sit down outside, this is the, the door gets quite specific. To relieve yourself, you shall dig with it, and then you shall cover up your excrement. Okay, so it's like, and it's like such a, you know, it's like, it's like this is so didactic. And yet, when I was in the army, I always made sure to have with me a trowel to give people a trowel. And then I would tell them, you know, it's a mitzvah. And then the Torah does not spare words. And it says, for the Lord your God goes along in the midst of your camp. To rescue you and to deliver your enemies before you. Therefore, your camp shall be holy. Right, very famous. So that he should not see anything unseemly amongst you and he would turn away from you and therefore not battle alongside you. Uh, and so, so the Torah tells us, like, if, if you're going to make war, make it a holy war. Invoke me. Bring me into your camp. Make sure that your camp is clean uh, and right. also doesn't have, you know, licentious things and posters and things that are not, that are not fitting. And so it's important to actually keep your camp holy if you're going to go into this kind of battle. Well, what's interesting is you, I knew what you meant when you used that phrase, keep it a holy war. But it's actually a very important distinction between the way the Torah approaches war and the way certain other traditions have sanctified war is that war isn't holy. Your camp has to be holy. Mm -hmm. Meaning, as you point out, not, war is, is not holy. It's a dirty, bloody, messy business, even when it's a mitzvah. Right? There is milchamit mitzvah, right? Uh, a commanded war, whether it's uh, defense of the people, whether it's the conquest of the land. But war itself is not where the holiness resides. And it's very clear. Right? Let your camp be holy. Meaning what? You need to keep the bestiality, which is an important tool of war. Because if you, you know, if you're all up in your higher consciousness during war, you're quite vulnerable to all the frailties and complexities that, that war invites. So you need to center into a deeper fight-or-flight element of the human being. That belongs on the battlefield, not in the camp, because if you bring that beast home, then that's what you become. Mm -hmm. And that's, I believe, why the Torah is so specific that, that you know, the two examples, someone who has a nocturnal mission and someone who needs to, you know, defecate, right? These are two very natural things. But they, right. there's but, actually, and there's a third one, right? There's the, there's the nocturnal emission. And, and the, the dead body. Right. Right. And, 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 and what the Torah is saying is that, is that, listen, life is life. We don't kid ourselves. The Torah is very earthy in that sense. It knows very well human experience. Um, but when you build the communal structures within which holiness or the opposite, God forbid, could reside, that's where the demand is at its highest. Right? I mean, war may not, we don't have holy war. We have a holy camp 
and we go to war because it's a commandment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, that was a good distinction. Um, by the way, when you when you do speak to uh, folks um, uh, in the Muslim tradition, and you mention jihadism, which I use oftentimes as a way to describe the to distinguish between Arabs or Muslims and the people we're at war with. But in any case, they often say to me that the word jihad means an internal struggle. I, can, I, I always say to them, hey, I understand that. that that's, not like, that's not a hard concept for me to understand. But the, the only reason I'm mentioning that is because uh, in this very same Torah portion, there's a very interesting phrase, which I think that the Gentile world um, and the world in general, the globe, should, should, we should all take this phrase seriously. Which is? And that is, observe and do what is emitted from your lips. Motsas fatecha tishmo. Like, mm. watch your mouth. Watch your mouth. Uh, and, and then it continues. And it, as you have pledged or sworn to the Lord, your God, uh, as a donation, keep, which you have spoken with your mouth. You said you made a promise to God. He keeps that. Uh, he, 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 he checks that. It's important to him. Your, your mouth is a creative thing. It means something to say something. Say the wrong phrase, it can destroy relationships. Say the right phrase, it can build relationships. Talk to God. God is, God's hearing what's coming out of your mouth. And I only mean to say that if there's another way that you could see this Parsha is that there's a lot of stuff about words, a lot of stuff about, about how words are used. And the, and the, the very kind of uh, important phrase, which I think all children should be taught as well, like watch your mouth, watch your mouth. I'm always telling my kids, like rehearse for a second what you're about to say, <laughs> hear it. And then judge if it's a good thing. Only then let it out of the gate. Uh, don't, yeah. don't, don't, don't fire off exactly what's what comes to you. You know you the three gates of the tongue. Go ahead, tell me about that. You got that right. way. Is it true? Is it necessary? Is it kind? <laughs> Very good. I mean, I mean, the first one should almost never pass your lips. Right. Right. But even if something's true. It's always very important to ask. You know. Why am I about to say this? Because the reality is it might be a true statement, but my motivations might not be so pure or good. And then the third piece is kind. It says it might be true. It might even you might even feel it's necessary. But the but the reality is, is that kindness is its own value. And and that not that it's an ultimate value, but it is an it is a crucial one. Those are the three gates of the tongue. And if one asks that question, literally asks those questions themselves before they say something, you will find a fundamental shift in your communication. Mm-hmm. I'm going to totally use that with my kids. So we're saying, is it, uh, is is it, it true? true? Is it necessary? necessary? Is, it kind? is it kind? Very good. In okay. order of priority. Speaking of kindness, I want to say hi to Marilyn Poe, who says shalom from North Carolina. They were seeing the union. That's right. And then we got Edwin, who says shalom from the Philippines. I've never been there, but it sounds nice. Yep. And then uh, shalom from NYC. Nice to see you both, says Penny. All right. And then uh, Stephen says shalom from Boston. And then Scott says, oh, the power of the tongue. Too many mouths in the world, not enough ears. Oh, well said. Okay, so, so there you go. So shalom to everybody. And so fun to be able to uh, broadcast to you. Uh, I'm in uh, beautiful Hebron right now. Um, this Torah portion has uh, a lot of laws. This is the most uh, chalk-filled. This is what's called Neum HaMitzvot, the uh, commandment speech in the book of Deuteronomy, the book of Devarim. It's Moses' long speech. That's a What's big that? chunk. It's seventy-four commandments wow. out of total six hundred thirteen. That's quite a that's quite an accomplishment. One parsha. 
It is, and 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 they are, uh, according to all the sages, uh, all opinions hold that you could even, since it's well ordered, a well ordered speech, you could even learn from placements of different laws next to one another. Yeah. Um, and I, I, there's just so many interesting things, but let's uh, let's um, talk about uh, the last part of the Torah portion, and that is about remembering. Uh, what Amalek did to you on the way, the verse says, seven, uh, first, first, what chapter is this? It's chapter 25, verse 17. You shall remember what Amalek did to you on the way when you went out of Egypt, how he appeared, how he happened upon you on the way and cut off all the stragglers at your rear, meaning to say he, you know, he attacks the weak ones in the back when you were faint and weary and he did not fear God, or maybe you did not feel God, fear God. That's a big question. Who is not fearing God there? So, but there, there was a, let's put it this way, there was a lack, of, a lack fear of fear of God. <laughs> yeah, one way or the other. Um, I mean, the simple reading is you did not fear God enough, but the, our, our sages say that he did not fear God. And that's, I mean, his lack of fear of God, that's obvious. Uh, Therefore it shall be when the Lord your God grants you respite from your enemies around you in the land. So it happens in the land of Israel, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance to possess, that you shall obliterate the remembrance of Amalek from beneath the heavens. You shall not forget. So, I mean, let's just talk about that for a second. What is this, like, glaring dichotomy? Glaring dichotomy, right? Well, remembering not to forget? Right, remembering not to forget. And then we have this whole mitzvah commandment to read this section we read it close to Purim it's all about like don't forget what this guy did to you and you better work towards forgetting it so just forget well, about it well uh, I mean, let's look carefully at what it says it says um yeah. and first of all it's, it's critical to notice that um uh, uh, right when God has given you rest from all your enemies around but in the land then this kicks in. So why do I say that? It also connects to your original question, which is that um, the formula of how we're meant to wipe out the memory of Amalek and we remember to wipe it out is a formula for how we're meant to process traumatic personal historical experience and use it as a source for positive identity. Or, and that can only happen to its fullness when we've come to rest. When we're no longer feeling pursued by that which we fear we've actually conquered it and put it to rest and then the trauma can begin to heal which is why right in the land and I, and I think that that's a big piece of what we're dealing with in your opening question is that I don't blame our government I don't blame our society I don't blame diaspora Jews I don't blame Israeli Jews for struggling with how to incorporate this new phase of the constant terror fear pursuit you know, the world can call us colonialists and talk about Jewish power all they want but, but where we're sitting today is a continuity with our struggle to survive that's been going on for more than 2,000 years. Right. So, but in this, it gives us hope. Why? Because, because Zecher, to remember, is literally to remember. It's to take the pieces of the past and to put them back together in the present, because that's where the act actually occurs, in a way in which frees us from the trauma and paves the way for the future that we want. Right? If we're constantly running from Amalek, we think they're always behind us. People act in a very specific way in the present in the many ways that shapes their future. Whether it's victimhood, whether it's a, a fearful sense of, of pursued paranoia. Whereas, 
if we can reattach, we say, no, we've wiped out that Amalek thing. They're not pursuing us anymore. There's a level of freedom that we gain for the action that lies before us, right? which is liberating on levels that we have not yet really begun to conceive, much less achieve. I guess, I guess what's frustrating is that um, we've come so far, and yet we still have so much more to go. And uh, and that's that's what's frustrating. It's like it's like you have a Jewish state. Not only that, I actually think that we're stronger than ever before economically, and also vis-a-vis our enemies who are weaker than than before. When I was a kid, Syria, Egypt, these were serious things. They were you know, major just, states, powerful right, states, right? With with the backer of a major superpower, the Soviet sure. Union. I mean, all that I mean, has changed, right? All this, there is no you know Soviet Union that's that's arming Sam, putting Sams into the Sinai. And all that, and you know, and and it's we're just we're really we're really the powerful force around here, and yet, you know, and yet we 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 have such a there, we've allowed these no go zones and this this jihadism to flourish in our land and this contra narrative. And, well, that's the piece that you've taught, and you're trying to teach people more and more is that it, this shift toward the narrative war came together with the shift away from any sense that that. Classic military power would defeat us, right? And and that's why the the problems that we face today are problems of perception, they're, they're problems of motivation and vision, because these are are narrative issues. It's not an accident that 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 change happened. But yes, you listen. I ever give you my canoe metaphor for Jewish history? Ah, like the difference between a Jew and a canoe. Is that the one? Mm-hmm. No, I hope you're not talking about the Monty Python joke. We can talk about that off the air if you're familiar with what I'm referring to. I don't know about um, that one, but uh, that's, American, I, I, that's about American beer in a in a in a, in a canoe. But um, anyway, maybe in Yavin. But what I'm speaking about is this: is that you've ever been in a canoe? Sure. It's a remarkably stable boat, right? You're in the water; it's it's quite fine. Yeah. And 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 when you're on the dock or on the land, looking at the canoe, you're in solid ground, right? So think of the canoe as as uh, exile. Like when we were out there in, I don't know, 14th century Rhineland or, 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 you know, 15th century Tunisia or wherever, we were just out there in canoe. It was like, yeah, Kaddish Baruch is going to bring us home. We know. We have faith. It's a stable situation, even though we're adrift, so to speak. We, you know, and obviously when we're in our land, we're two feet solidly on the ground. But you know what the real moment of danger is if you've ever actually been in a canoe? It's when you're trying to get out. Right. And you got one foot in the boat. And one foot on the land. And now suddenly, every puff of wind, every ripple on the water, every pebble on the shore is like, ah, ah, ah. everything feels so, except you're, you've made such progress. You're halfway out, right? But the, but the danger and the fear and the instability is what we're experiencing now. And we can't lose sight of that. Uh, that's a great metaphor. And, um, and and maybe that's when Amalek attacks, right? When you're when you're a little bit tired, when you're when you're when you're when you're on the way home, and when you have a few people straggling, you're almost there. And, and when you uh, lack, you're at Shemai, Meaning the other challenge is that we've taken an, a, a stance of agency, which I'm an advocate for. We decided to get out of the boat. We didn't wait for you know the magical tractor beam to raid down and lift us out and set us safely ashore. We took the action. Good, bad, or otherwise, it's a done deal. We're we're in it, you know. And, and but but the challenge there is that it's very hard to have a true sense of all of the divine that God is is really 
the agent in creation, while nevertheless still maintaining that absolutely essential posture that we are significant actors. That's why this partner has right. 74 right. votes. That's right. There's no and more that, important indicator that your actions matter. Right. And that and that God gives you blessings. He brings you back home, but you still have to fight. You have to fight against the bad guys. You just got to do it. That's part Creation of it. Creation is a defense. partnership. It's what it's meant to be. Uh, I mean, the, we're not going to get into this now, but the longer conversation is that the enemies have also created all kinds of narratives in order to weaken you. They have actually figured out how to weaken response uh, how to cut you off at the pass, if it were, as it were, and it was—they're very, you know, they're, they're good at that. They're good at limiting that toxic masculinity that it takes to to defeat, you know, an Amalek. Oh um, They're—they're they're good at that. All right, but Hashem has given us a, a guidebook and a lot of important laws that keep us both pure, uh, keep our keep our uh, even our army pure um, in our relationship with nature. Uh, in proper and proper like for example going to the bathroom is good and we even say say a a, a blessing afterwards uh, but favorites. that doesn't right but that does not mean that you should bow down to uh you know your poop or, or, or right or, or 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 poop in front of an idol that you should not do and that's an imbalance between those things and so thank god for the torah rev mike for i want to thank you so much for joining us today i think people can join you uh, at your other websites, jewishstory.co Co and, and rovmike.com. There you go. And stay tuned for the Jewish Heroism Project coming up. Very good. Start pumping out new content after the Chagin, please, God. Very, very excited. God bless you, folks, wherever you are. Stay tuned, stay connected. We'll be right back with more on the Yishai Fleischer Show. Thanks, Rav Mike. All right, folks, we are back here on the Yishai Fleischer Show, and uh, I'm on my own now for just a few minutes. I want to thank everybody uh, for joining us. And it's been a great time. And speaking of time, uh, I want to mention a good, uh, a good friends and also great supporters of our show, which is RetroWatchGuy.com. Uh, they 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 make um, they make available to you amazing watches from the past uh, that are awesome today. That's that's just like Judaism. It's something from the past that is awesome today, and it's working. Keeps going. It keeps telling time. Keeps telling us uh, how to connect to God in our time as well. So that's RetroWatchGuy.com. Uh, it's been a lot of fun to have the show today, and I'm really so proud to have such a great team, including Yochavit Seidman, Moshe Herman, Ben Bresky, Tabitha, and Lewin, where, 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 when we are live, uh, to be part of our shows. Um, and I want to also remind people that there's great ways to support the show, including buymeacoffee.com forward slash Yishai, buymeacoffee.com forward slash Yishai, or the YishaiFleischer.com page. Check out also our Biblical Highway page there, and see what we're doing. Coming up soon is the movie that's coming out uh, made by David Friedman and Mike Pompeo about the Biblical Highway. The Biblical Highway Route 60 is becoming a reality here in the land. I'm very proud to have uh, played a role in that and continuous role in that. So be part of that and support that. Um, I want to thank all the good friends out there that are supporters, friends, listeners, uh, uh, people who comment, people who write me an email. So much appreciated. So uh, much love out there. And I want to thank, of course, uh, the greatest sponsor of our show, uh, which is uh, God Almighty Hashem, who's given us the opportunity to live in this great time, a challenging time, no doubt a challenging time, and, and oftentimes a painful time, but it is such a blessing and such a, a gift to be able to be active in this time, to, to be able to have a role. And I bless you that you find a role to be active one way or another in the narrative war in the war you know for 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 Israel's beautification and its strength and its education and its sports and and its holiness and all the things any anything that you could find in your life that you could be just a small part 
of the story of the rebuilding of Israel, in my opinion, it's one of the greatest gifts that God could give you is that you identify something that you could be part of his story. And I think that his story right now is the building of Israel. So I am sending you lots of love and lots of blessings for success uh, from the good land, of the land of Israel, the land of Judea, uh, Jerusalem and Hebron and all the great cities, the holy cities of our God. And may Hashem be with us and give us strength through this time and help us come before him, this Rosh Hashanah, in purity and in humility and come before him and, and ask him to bless us to just be part of his great vision. Stay tuned, folks. More great stuff is on the way. Lots of love and shalom.